This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, such an interesting individual, Steve Ryback is a full-fledged, long-tenured police officer with the Las Vegas Police Department. He has traveled an incredible journey both as a professional and, of course, in a very unique profession for a nice Jewish boy and in his Jewish identity, his Jewish observance, where he has had a real odyssey and a legal battle as well to be able to express that identity on the force. And I'm excited for you to hear his story today. Meanwhile, a reminder is always to follow us on Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook, Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Comments or questions to Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. Follow or subscribe wherever you're listening, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever particular app you may be using. Please spread the word to your friends and family. And now to our conversation with the kosher cop, Steve Ryback. We are here with Steve Ryback, the kosher cop, which is a very uh, tantalizing appellation, and we will uh, try to understand a little bit about what that means. But how are you, Steve? Thank God, doing well. Thanks for having me on your show. Thank you. Wonderful to have you. And I've heard your name actually for a couple of years already. I think I've read about you in some different profiles. And my cousin reached out to me and said, hey, have you seen this guy before? And you should interview him. And so here we are. So, Steve, tell us a little bit about where you're from. Uh, I know you're out right now, I believe, in the West Coast, where it's nice and early. I mean, I'm recording at 10 o'clock in the morning Eastern, so it's bright and early for you out West. But uh, tell us a little bit about where you're from and, and your background. Well, uh, I grew up in Southern California, so uh, on the exact West Coast. Uh, right now, currently, I'm in Las Vegas, so I'm a little bit east of there. But I uh, grew up in Southern California, a little bit in uh San Diego, a little bit in L.A. I went to high school in L.A. and a year or so in college. I decided that uh, I wanted to go to UNLV, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, out here, and wanted to running rebels. So, running rebels, yes, yes, those are the glory days. Yeah, yes, we haven't quite met those expectations uh, in the last you know twenty something years since, but uh, still the running rebels. And so, uh, went to the university. Went to school for a couple of years, uh, studying elementary education. My goal was to be a teacher, elementary school teacher, and then uh, took the natural progression in my studies of joining the police department. And uh, <laughs> well, very often I think you you need to be a cop in the classroom. That's for sure. These days, uh, you know, it's it's probably uh, just as dangerous or more in a school than there is out in the streets. Yeah. And uh, so here I am on the department, uh, going on a little bit over twenty four years now. Amazing. Now, early on, I mean, what was your um, Jewish connection like? Is your family involved at all in Jewish life? Obviously, you know, L.A. has a huge Jewish population. Was your family at all involved in that? So we were uh, unaffiliated. You know, I grew up knowing that I was Jewish. You know, both my parents were Jewish. Uh, I had a little bit of you know Jewish uh, knowledge, but ultimately, uh, very very little in my in my upbringing. You know, I, I knew I was Jewish, but I didn't really know what it meant to be Jewish. And so, you know, we'd celebrate Hanukkah. Uh, we celebrated Passover. Uh, I used to 
joke with my sister, it was always the, pa- the fastest Passover Seder in the West. But, you know, that was pretty much the extent of, of my Jewish knowledge. You know, we read from the Haggadah. I didn't really truly, you know, immerse myself in the, you know, in the knowledge of, of religion uh, until I was a few years on the department out here in Las Vegas, of all places. That's where I, I found my, uh, my, my love of, of, uh, of my past, love of, of the religion. Beautiful. Did, did you have a bar mitzvah? So I didn't have a, an actual bar mitzvah until I was in my uh, early 30s when I first got called to the Torah. Wow. Incredible. So do you remember early on having any kind of affinity for or interest in law enforcement? Was that kind of like a, something that tantalized you as a, as a uh, child? You know, that's what's interesting is, is I, you know, I don't come from a legacy of cops. You know, my father wasn't a cop or anything like that. You know, I've joked with, you know, my siblings and such through the years because it did just kind of, I wouldn't say it came out of nowhere, but it, it, but it started later on in life. When I was in college, um, one of my roommates was a criminal justice major. And so he would talk about some of his classes or some of the things that he was doing in, in his studies. And it, it interests me. Um, a couple of jobs that I had, some of the people kind of associated around with it kind of put that spark in my mind that I'd be an interesting career. But growing up, you know, I would, I would try to sneak toys to school, like, you know, little, you know, toy soldiers or figurines, and I would hide them in my socks. So really the only, you know, close, you know, law enforcement was my dad patting me down before I would go to school to make sure I didn't have any, you know, toys or contraband going to school. That was it, my younger days. (laughs) Got it. So what did you want to do, you know, as a young person? Did you have an early life trajectory? You said teacher, maybe? Yeah. So um, earlier, early, early in life, I wanted to be a, um, a garbage collector. I thought it was very, very cool to hang off the back of a garbage truck, as every kid would think of. Um, I think my mom's happier that I chose a different route. But, um, but yeah, do they, I mean, do, really, do they do ride-alongs for those like they do for cops? <laughs> that I don't know, but don't tell my kids that because they would definitely want to do that. I would want to do that. I uh, think it sounds really cool. Until you fall off. But I mean, up until that point, it's great. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I was a camp counselor you know, when I was a teenager and kind of getting up into my uh, late high school years. And I just, I loved, I love teaching. I love transferring of knowledge. And so, um, so for my studies at, at the university was, was elementary education. I mean, I was really, I mean, I was dead set on that's where I was going, elementary school. And then uh, with about a semester and a half left, that's when I took a turn and, and applied for the police department out here. It took about a year to get on the department because you go through a pretty, pretty vigorous um, testing process. And I thought you had to have uh, like a degree in political science or criminal justice, something you know law related. But my police department where I work, they did require that you had to have a high school diploma. You had to meet a whole bunch of different criteria. So I just went through the testing process and you know, as months, months going by, I keep passing the process and keep passing. And next thing I know, in January of 98, I'm sitting in an academy, uh, you know, going through a several month academy on my way to getting a badge and a gun as a, you know, just a, I started out as a 21 year old kid and graduated when I was 22. And so it was just a interesting chain of events because years before that, I would thought I would be sitting in a classroom you know, not a, not an academy, but sitting in a classroom teaching, teaching children. Did you finish college during this or did you kind of leave UNLV to, to take this on? Yeah. So I had to leave UNLV initially because, um, you had, I had to do several semesters of student teaching and, um, that was pretty much like a full-time internship of sorts. 
So I wasn't able to finish my degree at that point uh, because I was working full time for the department. And so um, I took a pretty long time off. It was it turned out to be about a 10 year time off <laughs> and then ended up getting my degree 10 years later, not through UNLV. And then I went through a master's program and then uh, graduated, but uh, didn't do it continuously. Just a bit of a hiatus throughout the years. Now, what was your uh, your family's reaction when you told them you wanted to drop out of college, become a police officer, which is not the most conventional path for any Jewish kid? Forget a religious kid, just a Jewish kid altogether. It's not the doctor, lawyer, accountant. Right, right. You know, I think you know my my parents had to have been taken aback from it, uh, especially because for such a long time up until that point, and I was so focused on on the teaching component. Uh, then I leave to go away to college. And then, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure my parents thought, you know, okay, being influenced by somebody else or, you know, maybe just not making good decisions. But, but I, I think at the end, you know, at the end of the day, I, I matured, grew, you know, greatly later high school and into college that I think my parents just had a, some confidence in me that I had made the choice and that, you know, hey, it was my decision. And if it, you know, it wasn't something that like, hey, if it didn't work out, I had to stay in the career for 30 years or you know, I couldn't get out of it if I didn't want to. Um, so, you know, my parents were, were from, from what I recall, very supportive of it, uh, which, you know, was great. It only made it that much easier. I definitely did not have parents that were saying, no, don't do it. But I certainly was cognizant um, that it's a, you know, it's a dangerous job. And, you know, not necessarily what you see on TV is reflective of what happens on, you know, in the job and on the profession all the time. But there's that level of nervousness as, you know, now I'm a parent sending, you know, my kids out the world, being nervous for that. So I can only imagine how they were kind of feeling behind the scenes with uh, knowing that I'm out on the mean streets of Las Vegas. Yeah, absolutely. And Las Vegas in particular, I'm sure has its own brand of you know, challenges and, and, and things like that. But what do you think drew you to that career? You know, why somebody was planning to be in a classroom with little children, all of a sudden wants to be, you know, out on the streets with hardened criminals. You know, we're, we're, we're talking about kind of policing nowadays, but the criticism is that some people are drawn to the profession because of a you know, desire to be around violence or around you know, the have access, you know, sanctioned access to firearms and things like that. And I'm sure that's not what's drawing what was drawing you in, especially if the alternative was uh, teaching in a classroom. But what what did attract you to the profession? So that's a that's a really good question. Uh, I, I really think as as cliche as it sounds, I have a, a love and an enjoyment of helping people. I, I think in anything that you do in life, you want to make a difference. And I, I saw that it was an ability to help other people and be in a position to help other people. Where I feel like growing up early on in my life, I had uh, a good level of maturity based on some of my life circumstances that I had a lot to offer that I could kind of give a balanced approach and, and learn a new craft and a new trade. But ultimately, you know, again, as it sounds kind of movie-esque, I just wanted to, to, to help out and help the community and be someone who could be relied upon to, to, to do a job. So you went through the training. Can you describe a little bit about what the standard training for a police officer looks like? Certainly. You know, just to, to, to back up a little bit, just to get onto the department, it's a pretty grueling, um, it, it's about a nine to 12 month process. You have to go through the background test. You have to do a polygraph, a full, um, you know, they delve, you know, into your background of your jobs and your history and all that. Um, 
you take a psychological exam, a physical fitness test, written tests, um, all sorts of different, um, you know, a, a battery of tests to get on. And then you make it to the academy. Uh, the academy here is about, at the time, it was about six months. I think it's increased a few weeks uh, through the years. But it's, it's like going to, to school five days a week. Um, it's pretty intense training, especially I was in class in the academy with some guys where, you know, their fathers were cops and their father's fathers. And, you know, they had this whole um, legacy of people. So they kind of had that uh, some levels of the institutional knowledge or some ideas about the job, which I didn't have. Um, so uh, I was starting at obviously a very basic level, but uh, you learn um, defensive tactics. You're learning how to shoot a gun. Uh, those were the first times I, I learned to shoot a gun. I didn't come from a family where like my father or anybody had guns around. It was, it was definitely a new experience. Uh, but really, they teach you a lot of, of law how to use your skills and uh, your skill set is not necessarily, you know, I'm not a big guy. I'm, you know, five foot, nothing, hundred and nothing pounds. Uh, but really what I learned in the Academy and what they imparted on me and what I impart on other people through my years of, of being on the department is it's really what you learn knowledge wise. You know, it's, it's, you know, your head and your heart. Uh, that's really what's going to help you to kind of guide you as you go through in this, uh, it's a crazy job. Um, uh, but, uh, they really, Put you through a lot of training and then from there once you graduate uh, my department is really progressive and really advanced in training and maintaining skills so through the years you're constantly learning new things and uh, developing skills and uh, trying to better yourself so it's only increased in the 24 years were there aspects or was there a moment during the academy where you wondered yourself like what did i get myself into this is more than i bargained for yeah this is this is not what I expected. So another great question. Um, actually, from what I remember, no, I remember that it was a that it was a it was a great challenge, but it was something that I really felt like the only person who was going to kick me out or you know that was going to cause me to fail would be myself, and I, I just wasn't going to allow that. What were the most challenging learning curves for you? Was it firearms training? Was it digesting the the voluminous amounts of a law that you have to know in order to, to understand when you're supposed to do what, you know, on the job and reacting so quickly. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you nailed it by that reacting so quickly. Cause you know, we don't in law enforcement, we don't have that luxury of, you know, reversing or redoing, you know, you know, like maybe you're doing a, a podcast with somebody or, you know, we just had a glitch, you know, maybe you're able to edit that out or, you know, let's reverse, let's go back and let's redo it again. We don't have that luxury in law enforcement. And I think for me, the the hardest part initially was putting everything together, um, you know, meaning uh, able to multitask, um, able to, you know, from the simple parts of, you know, you see police officers driving around all over, putting the elements together where, you know, you're driving around, there's an understanding of simply where you are within your sector beat or your area that you're patrolling. Then you get a call on the radio, hearing the call listening to the details while you're traveling there. Maybe you don't know where you're going exactly. So you got to get there. You got to get there safely and then processing the, the details. Then what you're going to, you know, like having formulating some thoughts of what you're going to do. Uh, and then once you get there, react to what's happening in front of you because it's not a static situation. You want to make it static, uh, but sometimes you have no control over that initially. And then you got to solve the problem and then you got to do it legally, lawfully, within policy and you're dealing with elements. I remember, you know, I'm a, I'm a 22 year old kid and I'm, you know, I'm going out on domestic violences or 
Um, you know, I, I'm counseling people on, you know, on marriages. I wasn't even married myself, you know, and sometimes I'm in situations where people have been married longer than I've even been alive. And, you know, here I am putting on these different hats that we all do as, you know, in the law enforcement field. And I'm still trying to, you know, kind of learn and fumble my way through it. So it's definitely some interesting experiences. So, you know, you entered law enforcement, I think in a, in a time, it was a very different climate vis-a-vis the institution. Um, you know, when you joined, I would say that was, uh, you know, I remember those, those, those years and I think by and large law enforcement had a fairly positive, maybe benign, you know, sort of reputation with the, with the broader public. And here we are in 2022 and a very, very different culture. Now, you know, I don't want to overstate the case. There may be many places where that sense of respect for, for law enforcement is still very much present. And then, the reverence and the appreciation, but they're definitely, definitely from a public relations standpoint and from a media standpoint, you know, it's in a very, very different place reputationally than it once was, whether it's movements like the defund the police or just kind of the aftermath of things like George Floyd and so forth. How has the industry, so to speak, for lack of a better term, changed over the number of years that you've been involved? And in particular, these last few years where there seems to have been an accelerated shift and not necessarily in a positive direction towards this profession? Yeah, I mean, uh, very interesting question. And I mean, I think that a lot of personnel and officers within the law enforcement realm have had to take a good look in the mirror, take a step back, because it's definitely um, been some interesting times over the last uh, you know few years specifically. I would say over my career, we've had some ebbs and flows, you know, the ups and downs of, of the career. Um, where, you know, we have our good days and our bad days. And um, unfortunately, you know, we're judged in split second instances. Again, that doesn't happen in many, many other careers. Now, it's not to say we shouldn't be criticized or we shouldn't be scrutinized, um, you know, because those are important components of the job. And for me, I look at it, you know, I'm in the position of a lieutenant. I oversee, uh, you know, various officers, detectives, sergeants, uh, you know, that, that you know, we, we have to get it right. Uh, that's extremely important in our profession because if we get it wrong, you know, lives are at stake, people's freedoms are at stake, people's possessions are at stake. Th- those are those are not things that I take lightly. But it's also difficult as a supervisor. How do you motivate these guys to basically go out and protect the community where they're in question? Of does the community even want them there? Uh, does the community even care? Um, so it is tough. You know, and I'm kind of in the sunset, you know, a few more years left, you know, hopefully, um, you know, before I retire. So for me, I look at it from a different perspective, like, oh, you know, not that, you know, okay, who cares? I'll be gone. But it's more of now it's transition of I got to help these other guys, um, you know, these these new, I call them the new kids coming on because you have to motivate it and you have to let them know, listen, you know, it's still an important job. You know, what you hear on the media, that may be the loudest voice, but that doesn't mean it's the biggest voice or it's the, you know has the most volume with the voice. They just are holding the microphone right now. Um, but there's other people that are in line and the community over, you know, overall, they do support us. Um, but I think we're quickly seeing where, you know, people were jumping on that bandwagon of defunding or, you know, not having the police around. I think people were uh, seeing that, you know, that, uh, that that just doesn't work very well. You know, when you use you know, the thin blue line expression of, you know, what the police are, um, you know, where that, that line, you know, that the, the line in the sand between, you know, good and evil and, um, you know, positive and negative and things that happen. And so it's, it's an interesting profession and this has made it very difficult, but really if you peel back the layers and you look at the job and the profession, 
the job of working in law enforcement, it's inherently negative. I mean, if you really think about it, everything, or I would say everything, but for the most part, a high, high percentage of what we do is negative. I don't know, you don't have to disclose your background history, but if you've ever been pulled over before or you heard somebody that gets pulled over, you know, their first thought in their mind is not, you know, Ooh, my day's about to get a whole lot better right now. Or, you know, when, when, when you're driving around and you see police around, typically good things aren't happening. You know, we're at crashes. We're at, uh, you know, crimes that have happened, you know, uh, hellacious crime scenes. Um, you know, we're not knocking on people's doors and saying, hey, you know what? Nobody called the police tonight. Everybody's getting along. You know, hey, here's a handshake, a fist bump, a high five. Thank you very much. You know, we don't pull people over for stopping at the stop sign completely. So, it, you know, if you really think about it, a lot of what we do is negative. And so it, that cumulative negativity can also be another barrier or burden that, that you take with that. And then you couple that with, you know, the public sentiment or what, what is the perceived public sentiment at this point. It's a very, very difficult job. I think you're also seeing, you're going to see some ripple effects in a lot of communities where people just aren't applying. Like, why, why would you want to be a police officer, you know, at this point? If the public hates you or you're just going to end up on YouTube or you're going to be the next, you know, whatever video across the news, why do you want that stress? Uh, so I think people are going to pick other professions. And, and um, it's extremely disheartening because this is a job that, I, that I've loved for 24 years. And I, I, I love it up to the second right now. Uh, it's an incredible career. It's given me incredible opportunities and growth and places and people that I've never would have experienced in my life. And so it's been, uh, it's been fabulous. And I just hope for the same for other people when they go through their careers. But it's going to be tough to get them in at this point. Yeah, and of course, the, what that leaves over is the, the ones who actually are least qualified, the ones who want it because of some sort of right. bloodlust or some sort of, you know, adrenaline uh, junkies or something along those lines are the ones that are left over still drawn to the career instead of people who might be a little more level-headed or, or more altruistic right. about their desires. Exactly. Yeah, really good point. Because you definitely, you know, we're not looking for uh, to hire anybody. It's not like you just oh, hey, there's a help wanted sign at the police department. I'm going to go take it off. And, you know, here I am. We're definitely looking for, you know, solid people that are wanting to do it for the right reasons. What are some of the roles that you've occupied over the years? Have you done any detective work? Have you been uh, on a traffic beat? Like what have been your unique uh, rotations? Uh, so I've done a lot. I have a pretty diverse background, which, you know, looking back, uh, it's good. You know, I have some administrative investigative. So I, I started out, I worked in the jail for about a year, then worked patrol as an officer for about three years, did some plain clothes, like general detective work for a couple of years, did the D.A.R.E. program. I don't know that's uh, going way back for some people, Drugs, some yeah, communities, sure. some, some, uh, some communities still have it. It's a, uh, like a life skills program for fifth and sixth graders where they have police officers come in and teach these programs. So for that, I did that for almost two years and that was great because it kind of incorporated my two loves, my love of teaching and also working as a, as a police officer. Um, I worked undercover two stints for uh, about three years each. So total uh, uh, six, little almost, almost seven years working in our vice narcotics area. So was, I, I know it doesn't look like if, if you saw me now, you know, the beard, the yarmulke, it's, it's, it's you know, uh, Blend right in. You blend right into the cartels. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this was definitely different, but I did that. Then I promoted to sergeant. I was on some investigative squads. Uh, and then about two years ago, I uh, promoted to lieutenant. And then uh, now for about the past six months or so, I work uh, in our internal affairs section. 
overseeing uh, a bunch of sergeants and detectives and making sure that, uh, you know, ensuring that, you know, officers are investigated for any alleged misconduct and hopefully getting these guys on the path of, of doing the right thing. So that's a very different role because now you become almost a kind of an adversarial position where, you know, just like the public doesn't want to see the cops around them. The cops don't want to see IA around them either. Right. So Yeah, it is interesting. Um, you know, fortunately on my department, it's not, we're a really good department. I mean, uh, I think we're one of the most progressive, one of the, obviously I'm a little partial, but you know, one of the best departments in, in terms of training and, you know, what we expect from cops. Uh, we have a lot of agencies that use what we do as our, as their best practices. And so IA here is definitely looked upon as, you know, I, I think it's more of the bad cops don't like us and the good cops do because they understand we have a job, we're objective and we're trying to weed out we're the thin blue line of the thin blue line, you know, and if there's cops that are doing wrong, other cops don't want to be the, be around them. They don't want them on the department. We don't want to share that same badge. And so it is looked upon as a, as a very um, positive position, uh, you know, as much as it could be. Um, but certainly there's those that find us negative and that, you know, we're out for blood, so to speak. You know, we really try to be as impartial as we possibly can because we we want to get it right and, and getting it right matters. And that's something I impart on, on my, my teams. When you talk about being a progressive department, are you referring to things like interrogation tactics or, you know, policing reforms? What, what do you all, mean by All that? sorts of stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, you hit it on the policing reforms. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, if up until the riots and the protests that were happening, you know, just after COVID with the, with the George Floyd, we didn't have any of that in Las Vegas. And I think that that spoke volumes with how my agency operates because, you know, we have a, our tagline is, you know, we're partners with the community, but we truly were partners with the community uh, and we truly are. We're out there, you know, we like, you know, shaking hands and kissing babies, you know, we're out there really getting out there and understanding what the community needs are and taking it a different approach. Uh, we have community-oriented policing programs um, where we're out helping to find out what are the root causes of why crime is happening in these neighborhoods, not just being reactive. And I mean, there's a certain component to we're always going to be reactive in police departments, but you know, what are some of the underlying issues that are happening in these you know, crime-ridden neighborhoods? We're heavily involved in a, a Hope for Prisoners program where the police are helping those that are re-entering society from prison and jails to integrate and be productive members of the community. And it's like, these are the people that inherently we put away in jail and in prison, and yet we're helping and embracing them to come back into the community. Um, and those are just two examples of, of what the department is doing. But, you know, we've, we've had uh, in terms of uses of force, which is a hot button issue, you know, that had to do with, you know, with George Floyd and, and some of these other cases, you know, we've had our officer involved shootings, those are going to happen. But we are heavily trained and it's drilled in our heads of about de-escalation techniques and other uses of force and, and verbal judo skills where you're not just necessarily going to go hands-on. And certainly there's times and places where sometimes those are unavoidable. You have to just go right to using a gun. That may be the only de-escalation technique you have, but we're teaching it in a way that you know it, it, it's kind of going back to the academy where you're putting it all together, like how the laws and the tactics and the and your skills how do you put them all together to be as successful as possible but one of the things that we're really teaching now over the last uh, year or so is really to slow the momentum down as much as you can to help 
make good decisions. You know, so many, many other examples, but that's kind of the the tip of the iceberg of of what we're doing out here. And I think it's been extremely successful because the community sees that we really truly do care. We're not just out there for the paycheck. We're not just out there to you know harass people or whatever the buzzwords are that are going on. We're truly out there because we care and we want to be a part of the community because the reality is we are a part of the community. You know, we live in the community. Our profession is the job, but that's not who we are. That's it's just what we do. What are the unique challenges of policing in a city like Las Vegas, which is perhaps unique to certainly any city in the U.S. and maybe in the world in terms of, you know, the gambling and it's just the entire vibe of the city is just so unique, you know, in, in so many ways. And obviously, it's changed over the years. It's it's evolved, I guess, from a much seedier kind of place, maybe, you know, maybe mafia dominated sort of underground right. type thing to a much more family friendly type of, uh, you know, type of life. But nonetheless, there still is plenty of the other elements as well, I'm sure. It's just such a unique environment. What are some of the uh, particular challenges or distinctive issues that you encounter in Vegas that you may not in any other city? Yeah, it definitely is a unique environment because, you know, we rely solely on tourism. You know, some people say, you know, there's more religion here in Las Vegas than anywhere else in the world. But people are gambling and as they're gambling, you know, please, God, let me win, please, (laughs) please, God. But, um, you know, it definitely is unique because we rely solely on that or or not solely, but, uh, you know, a huge part of our economic vitality is based on people coming here and the tourism. So from a police standpoint, you know, uh, temping down the crime or, you know, having it associated, not having it associated with, you know, the the strip and where that occurs, you know, it's it's something that we take very seriously uh, because that is our lifeblood. I also want to make sure your, your listeners know, you know, we don't all live in casinos here. Actually, you know, we have a house in the backyard. It's, <laughs> you know, um, it is weird because we do have you know, slot machines in our grocery stores. That is a little odd, but uh, it's uh, you know, outside of the strip, it's 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 almost like any town USA. You know, we have our problem areas, we have our you know good areas, we have um, you know the the same problems and the same crime that that happen everywhere else. Um, just, you know, our focus is on trip and from a law enforcement standpoint, you know, we have different you know, tactics and, and uh, ways that we try to combat the crime and, and make the tourists feel as safe as possible. And obviously, the, you know, the community members as well. Yeah. It's just not many places where, you know, four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning, people can still be out and about as if it's, you know, high noon, you know, and, right. you know the, the alcohol and the gambling. And there's just so yes. many aspects there that are that are totally legal, but that you know, in the wrong concoction can create serious problems. There's been a bunch of NFL stories this year, Henry Ruggs, and a terrible, you know, uh, accident that, that killed someone. And just so many things you won't hear about stories coming out of Vegas when, you know, the things that are permitted there end up cascading into something more than they should have been. Right. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a unique city um, because yeah, I mean, 24 hours a day, you can pretty much do anything, you know, if, you know, dry cleaners are open 24 hours and then bars and, you know, so obviously those, those elements are going to exist, you know, and it does make it difficult from, you know, the law enforcement of trying to combat some of those. Uh, but, you know, but we do our best to you know, try to educate the community and try to, you know, again, be partners with the community of, of trying to do it. But um, it, it is some unique challenges that, that we do have to deal with from this, from this town for sure. Uh, because also, you know, it's not uncommon to have, you know, two, three, four hundred thousand people come in for a weekend, you know, like New Year's Eve, or if there's a big, you know, we're going to have the Super Bowl in a couple of years, or, you know, we just had the NFL 
Pro Bowl and the NHL All-Star Game at the same time. So, you know, it's hundreds of thousands of people coming in and then conventions. And we're able to accommodate that very, very seamlessly and very easily um, where other places that may be their one event for the entire year or for the decade. And meanwhile, we're handling that type of uh, situation daily. And it's just it's just the norm for us. I want to pivot now and, and talk just a little bit about your Jewish journey. You know, you said you did not grow up with an extensive uh, background, didn't even have a traditional bar mitzvah, and yet now you've got the beard and, and yarmulke going. Yeah. There's obviously a story somewhere in there. So what, uh, yes. what did take place? So I was a few years on the department, uh, and then through a friend, uh, I was invited to a rabbi's house for Shabbat dinner, for a Friday night dinner, and I... I knew nothing. I, I knew nothing of, you know, what, what is, what is Shabbat? You know, I, I couldn't even tell you honestly what day of the week that was, if there was any significance, you know, uh, you know, is it every week, you know, whatever the circumstance was, I, I couldn't tell you anything, demonstrate how little knowledge I had at that time. Um, so I go to the rabbi's house on the Friday night, the rabbi was not home from shul from, from services. So I, I saw the Rebbitson, the, the rabbi's wife light Shabbos candles and I, I like to say that seeing that really lit a spark in me that has been just burning extremely brightly up until this day. But then that set in motion a whole series of events that night. Uh, you know, the rabbi comes home, I see the Shalom Aleichem, the Kiddush and Hamotzi and uh, songs and Vartoras and all these things were going on. And I, I literally am sitting there knowing nothing. And what was very interesting is, and I think, you know, it's it's not unique to to this rabbi's home, but it was a very warm and inviting atmosphere, as it should be, as you know, you know, tons of places that I've been for Shabbos are like. But I had such a level of comfort to ask questions to the rabbi and the rebbitzin of, you know, why are we doing this? What does this mean? What is that? And it just it ignited this spark in me that I was like, wow. And I sat there, and as I was consuming all of this knowledge and and these new experiences, I truly sat there disgusted with myself. And I, I, I really became angry and upset. And as I analyzed it, I was like, wow, you know, here I am in this situation where uh, I knew nothing. I knew nothing of my, my Judaism and my Yiddishkeit. And I was so just irritated with myself that I had gone on so long in my life and just so uneducated, didn't know anything. And, and I said to myself, this has got to change. And I didn't know what that meant that night. But I knew that I needed to make some changes and I needed to kind of make up for lost time. And I thought about, you know, the Holocaust and the oppression and discrimination that Jews had had dealt with all their life and had fought so hard for Judaism. And here I was doing nothing. I was just so flippant. And uh, it, it just, I, I, again, I, I had to make some changes and I didn't know what that meant, but it, it fueled me to leave that night. And I started learning and I started educating myself and reading books and taking classes and, you know, all, all over online and just trying to soak up as much as I could. And early on, I, I learned about, um, I, you know, I don't like to use the term, you know, orthodox, reform, conservative. I, you know, I'm not a title person because I feel like we're all Jews, period. Those that are Jewish, uh, you know, we're all Jews. It doesn't matter where we're holding. But I saw pretty early on my goals were okay, I, Shomer Shabbos, Shomer Kashrut, those were goals that I was striving for early on. How old were you when you had this initial encounter? I was about, uh, about 25 years old. So a couple years yeah. on the force. 24, yeah. And just had this, this 
connection. It's a pretty strong reaction that you had. Most people think just go and enjoy a Shabbat dinner. They don't necessarily you know, make life uh, choices based on that one dinner. It was, uh, you know, a credit to the to the rabbi and the rabbitson and and those people that were there that day because it was just uh, the environment was completely nurturing for it, and I was I was ready for it. So, were there any kind of dramatic shifts at some point, or was it really kind of like a slow burn, a, a step by step process for you? It was slow. It was over the next, I would say, the next couple years. Uh, you know, I slowly started taking on more physical mitzvahs and, and transitioning in a, in a way that. Uh, my goal was I wanted to learn and understand the mitzvah or learn and understand the custom or you know the minhag, whatever it was that I was trying to learn with the intent that I would then do it forever. You know, that was that was my goal. So like for example, I started early on saying the Shema every day. Uh, so it was just simply as saying the Shema. I didn't even didn't even do the you know, didn't do talis to fill or anything, you know, full full davening. And then I started praying three times a day and I started keeping my head covered. At the time I was I was working undercover in Vice, which was interesting in its own respects, that uh, you know, I went and spoke to a rabbi, you know, is it appropriate? You know, I'm out here, you know, buying drugs, picking up prostitutes, selling drugs, you know, and here I am as this person, you know, trying to become observant. And no, we're not applying, you know, we're not uh, hiring if anybody's uh, interested at this point. Uh, for those <laughs> as a as a as a, you know, Religious view, but uh, you know it's always interesting. You know, as I'm trying to you know grow in my in my Judaism, is it appropriate for me to be in these positions? Uh, you know, but I was given the given the go ahead, and but uh, so over over time, I started to to do more, and then you know wear a yarmulke, keep my head covered, uh, you know, grew out a beard, and I and I started to have these connections to to these mitzvahs as I started to go, and then uh, you know keeping kosher and keeping the Sabbath. And so it just kept going. I mean, I think if you ask my family, they would see it because they were looking at it from the outside perspective that it was, you know, it was very, um, very quick. But me being living out of town and away from them, I think, you know, they saw the drastic uh, changes because if, you know, they saw me last week, I'm, you know, or last month, I'm not doing this. And then now next month they see me, all of a sudden he's got a beard and he keeps his head covered. Uh, you know, they were seeing it a little more drastic and it, it wasn't month to month, but it was more I would say about a two-year process of ultimately, you know, becoming Shomer Shabbos, Shomer Kashrut, and and uh, really buckling down in that respect. So, what was the reaction like on the force? Because when you came in, you were not like that, so it wasn't like they they knew you as that coming in. Correct. Is a pretty big shift from their perspective as well, I would imagine. Yeah, it was um, definitely some challenges to say it the least. I wouldn't say I kept it hidden, but you know, working undercover at the time, and you know, it wasn't just something I, you know, I'm not going to go out and pick up a prostitute wearing a yarmulke and, a, you know, my tzitzit out. It's not appropriate. Um, not that I wasn't proud of my, my Judaism, but like, it just, obviously there's, you know, some issues with that. You know, I just kind of kept it to myself. I had Thursday, Friday, Saturdays off when my days off. So I was able to keep the, keep Shabbos, no issues. I brought my lunch to work and just kind of, uh, you know, went through it. But um, through a, a few series of events, there was a, an instance where my detail was going to have this assignment where everybody was going to have to work on Friday and Saturday nights. And it was mandatory. I tried to get out of it by using either vacation time or you know, even though I was given overtime for it, um, I tried to get um, you know, some alternatives to avoid having to work on the, sh- on, on the Sabbath. And uh, ultimately, the department said they weren't going to work with me on it. I had to work. And if I didn't work and I didn't show up, I'd be insubordinate, ultimately be written up and uh, probably subsequently fired after that. So Obviously, I didn't want to tarnish my record at that point. I, 
still have an impeccable record to this point, that I made the decision that I would leave. If there was an option, I would leave the detail. I would go to another position where I wouldn't have to worry about any of the, the religious issues. And so ultimately, they, I was transferred to another position. I asked if I could wear a beard and a yarmulke. While I was in that, it was a non-uniformed position. And um, ultimately, I was denied. And so it set off a chain of events way longer to, to discuss than uh, the podcast allows time for. So I, I tried to work with the, with the department in terms of coming up with options. And I was just stonewalled in every front. And that led to me having to file a, a lawsuit in federal court for religious discrimination, um, for the right to wear a beard and to keep my head covered at work. And uh, that lasted several years, several year fight. But ultimately, Baruch Hashem, uh, thank God, prevailed in the sense that we were able to work out accommodations where you know, as I know you can see me, but your viewers can't, but, uh, or your listeners can't is, uh, you know, have the beard, wear the yarmulke at work. And, um, it took several years, uh, even after the lawsuit, um, where the department completely did a 180 and, and, and embraced the, the different aspects of my, uh, my religion. And, um, I couldn't be more pleased with the outcome to this point. And I, I truly believe that it took all the, it took all the years of activity and all the problems to get where we're at today then it was absolutely worth it. Would you advise other uh, religious people to go into law enforcement? Or would you say, stay away if you, if you don't know what you're getting into? I mean, it's, it, it, it's a great profession. It truly is. I mean, what it's allowed and provided for me and my family, it, it's an amazing job, you know, and the experiences and all that, you know, it crosses all boundaries, you know, religion, not religion, all that. But I definitely would be candid with somebody of, hey, here are the difficulties. You are dealing with um, situations where people are not as educated, um, but there's a lot of room for growth in every aspect. You know, I use it as, listen, I have a, you know, I walk around with a beard and a yarmulke now. It's very glaringly obvious that I am a Jew that, you know, that screams out. And so what I tried to, uh, you know, let the department know is that outward display of of my religion you know that that puts me at a what i believe a higher standard i have to conduct myself to the highest levels uh, so it's only going to better the department um and so i would tell somebody coming in if they were you know that that you're going to have these responsibilities you're going to have some challenges you're going to have some difficulties but they're easy i don't know easily overcome there's ways to overcome it there, there's creative ways but I think ultimately it's a good time on the department. People are here to learn and it's, it's how you present it. And I'm in a detail now, uh, last month was my birthday. You know, we celebrate birthdays in my unit and the sergeants and the detectives and the staff that I work around, they made a really big deal. We went and got kosher pizzas and they had a kosher cake. And it was just, it was an amazing display of their willingness to want to learn and their willingness to want to understand and, and, be a part of us all learning together. And it was, it was just amazing because if I really take a step back and look at that from years ago, you know, there's friction and I'm fighting the department to now we're having kosher pizza and cake, you know, in my office at work. And it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal way of, uh, of the, of how it, how it turned out and how it's continuing. Yeah. Not it's uh, I want to call it a happy ending, but certainly uh, a happy middle point or uh <laughs> trending in the right direction as you, you know, really advance in your career. And it sounds like really you have the opportunity to make a great Kiddush Hashem uh, sanctification of God's name, both within the department where I'm sure you are quite a novelty to 
most of the officers there and in the community more broadly where, again, people are facing you maybe at their worst moments, at their moments yeah. of crisis. Um, and to see a visibly identifiable religious Jew as the quote unquote savior in that situation or the one who's coming to redress their circumstances. And if you can do that with tact and with dignity and with compassion, uh, even when you have to enforce the law, then obviously that that really leaves opportunity for a tremendous sanctification of God's name and a, a very unique way of expressing Judaism to the broader world. So thank you for that service. And uh, thank, you. thank you so much for everything that you do. Tell us a little bit about just quickly where people can learn more about you. And you've got a website yes. that has some, some cool materials on it. Let us know where, where we can find out more about your story. Yeah, everybody could uh, check me out at koshercop.com. It's uh, kosher with a K, cop with a C. Uh, again, koshercop.com. I do have a book that I co-wrote about my journey, my life. It's called My Journey Home, written with uh, Herb Jaffe and myself that uh, is uh, published. You can learn about the book on my website. Um, you can reach out to me if anybody wants to uh, email or connect with me. They can uh, do so off the website. But I travel I travel the country, travel the world. I've been uh, a few international places. But uh, go and speak about my life and my circumstances it's you know again it's hard in this uh, quick environment to uh to tell everything but there's a lot to learn on my website and on my book but i do travel and speak to communities and organizations uh touted as you know the kosher cop you have the right to remain jewish um, but uh, <laughs> we have miranda rights there's also the uh I don't know, mosaic rights. There we go. Yes, exactly. The Mashiach <laughs> rights or something. Yes, exactly. Steve so. Ryback, the kosher cop. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been an honor and a pleasure and I appreciate uh, you giving me a few minutes of your time. This was great. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.